Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined today on the podcast by Yi-Ting Liu, an international research analyst that covers companies around the globe. Yi-Ting is a graduate of the University of Michigan, and prior to working at Diamond Hill, worked at Keefe, Bruyette, and Woods, as well as Lehman Brothers. Yi-Ting is joining me on the podcast today to discuss a wide range of topics, including inflation's impact on luxury brands and the impact of COVID on travel infrastructure. I'm excited to share that this podcast is our first post-COVID lockdown podcast with both of us in the office. I still ask for your understanding for any sound issues or background noise that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy my discussion with Yi-Ting. Yi-Ting, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. I appreciate you, uh, you taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, let's jump right into the questions. Uh, you know, every time we hear from Jerome Powell, he reiterates the Fed's belief that inflation is going to be transitory and we'll see it cool down in the coming months. I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you to predict whether inflation is transitory or not, but I am going to ask you uh, to opine on how our international portfolio is positioned with regards to inflation? Um, like you said, you know, companies' ability to cope with inflationary pressure has definitely been a very hot topic lately. And there's been many debates of whether higher inflation we've seen thus far in the U.S. is transitory or sustainable, and what that really means to inflation expectations globally, since we manage the international portfolio. So again, for those audience who aren't as familiar with Diamond Hill, um, I just want to kind of give a little background intro. We are bottom-up investors, which means we're doing deep fundamental analysis of individual companies and industries. And we certainly don't look for investment ideas solely based on these macro or directional plays, right? Whether it's higher or lower inflation. And we may have you know, informed views and opinions about these political, economic, inflation, and market dynamics for many countries that we cover, but we just want to be careful not to let our macro views unduly influence the portfolio. Now, all that said, um, I do think actually our international portfolio is actually very well insulated or positioned even for rising inflation. Uh, should that uh, sustained rising inflation is here to stay. Um, and we that's simply because we own companies that have real pricing power due to strong consumer demands for their highly sought after products, which make these companies more defensive in a sustainable global inflationary environment. Again, if that pans out. Now we know we own several names in the international portfolio. And, you know, for example, LVMH, Richmond, Diageo, you know, Walt Disney, you know, all these names possess such character that I just mentioned. But I guess I'll just elaborate on one that I cover specifically. We own LVMH, which is the world's largest luxury conglomerate that has over literally like 70 brands across its portfolio. And of course, the most renowned ones being Louis Vuitton, Christian Dior, Hennessy, the cognac brand, Safara, the makeup um, cosmetics retailer. So, of course, most recently, they just did the Tiffany's acquisition. So, of course, adding Tiffany's to its brand portfolio as well. 
Now, our investment thesis is very much premised on the supremacy of these brands, but also the diversification of them across different product categories. And what that means is they're not just in one product category. They're in fashion and leather goods. They're in jewelry and watches, perfume and cosmetics, liquor and wine, et cetera. So it's very well diversified. Now, despite last year being the COVID-19 pandemic, there was actually a global price increase by LVMH of about 5% or so that was implemented middle of last year, so middle of 2020, for the Louis Vuitton brand across the board. And then for Christian Dior, which is also a highly sought after brand, there were upward price adjustment only for the best-selling items. And the Hennessy, for those of you who like liquor, the cognac brand, there was also a three to four percent price increase last year. Now, these price hikes didn't negatively impact sales volume at all, which goes to show the company's strong pricing power because the strong consumer affinity for its iconic brand. Right. If you kind of pause for a second and think about it, I mean, a company's ability to pass on cost inflation or even price ahead of inflation really has to do of the level of commoditization of its product, right, which it sells. And maybe the market structure of the industry in which it operates in. So it depends on how fiercely competitive it is to operate in that industry. So if you're providing a product that is undifferentiated, commoditized, you know, you have to fiercely compete against your peers that offer pretty much near substitute of your product. Well, it's going to be extremely unlikely for you to have pricing power and being able to pass through cost inflation to your end consumer. So that kind of makes sense, right? So historically, you know, companies have had easier time to exercise their pricing power on some product categories than others. Like I mentioned, global luxury goods, you know, think of companies like LVMH or Richmond, which owns the Cartier jewelry brand. Think of like alcohol and liquor product category. So think of like Diageo or Remy Condro and think of like premium beauty. So think of companies like L'Oreal or Estee Lauder. These are the product categories that historically have had easier time or higher pricing power than say something more like a little bit more generic, like consumer packaged goods or home personal care type of product category. Again, luxury consumers, I would say, again, generally speaking, (laughs) don't care about prices as much. They desire the premium brand that comes with it, heritage, tradition, legacy, these these kind of things, Um, you know, so it's a little easier to pass along cost inflation or even say currency mismatch between revenue and cost. You know, those type of things are usually a non-event for the luxury goods companies. And again, you know, just to give you some example of kind of the iconic brands or products that really possess super uh, long-term pricing power. So think of Rolex, Submariner watches. That product or iconic brand was able to increase price, you know, consecutively, Kager, over the last 60 years, about 5 to 6% per year. Hermes, the Birkin and Kelly handbags, which are, again, highly sought sought after, that product was able to increase the price about 5% Kager over the last 40 years. 
So all those are just examples of um, companies, iconic brands and their strong pricing power. All that said, I mean, value is definitely more important than price. <laughs> Consumers are willing to pay up as long as the brands or the companies continue to deliver the value they, de they desire, right? And what are these values for luxury goods? It's exclusivity, it's superiority, it's the emotional connection with those brands, it's legacy, it's heritage, it's all those things that I mentioned. And again, these all, all these characters help to preserve the long-term brand equity and the desirability of these brands or products in the mind share of a luxury consumer. So a lot of those names you mentioned, I I am not familiar with at all. I mean, I know the names, but I don't I don't know any of that stuff. But you know it very well, uh, as evidenced by it, by what you were just talking about. Um, what are some of the trends in this luxury goods market pre-pandemic, and then how did the market overall fare during the lockdown? And now that we've got some reopening and consumer getting back out there, you know, how did the luxury goods market kind of navigate through uh, from pre to we'll call it post-pandemic? Yeah, sure. So I guess just to kind of step back a little bit for those audience who aren't familiar with the luxury goods market pre-pandemic, um, I just want to do a little quick intro. Um, so again, you know, like I mentioned, these kind of consumers globally view luxury goods almost as a status symbol or almost like a must-have that presents like exclusivity or heterogeneity or differentiation in a more homogenous society. You know, if you go back in history in the 1970s and 80s, the Japanese as a nationality actually accounted for more than one third of global luxury consumption. And actually, once upon a time, I think um, the Japanese nationality even accounted something like ridiculous, like 90% of Louis Vuitton brand sales once upon a time. And of course, I would say over the last 20 years or so, so since the early 2000s, it's been all about luxury consumption by the Chinese consumers or nationality. The consumption of luxury goods by Chinese nationalities rose essentially from nothing in the early 2000s to now more than 35% of global luxury spend in 2019, and that's a pre-pandemic year. However, majority of that luxury spend by Chinese consumers or nationalities, majority of which, like 70% of them, actually took place outside of mainland China, mostly in regions like Europe. Think of like Italy or France that has a long tradition of luxury goods manufacturing. Uh, but also in other parts of Asia, like Hong Kong, Japan, Korea. So why, I guess, why most luxury consumption of the Chinese take place overseas in Europe? Well, this was mainly due to the fact that there was always historically a large price difference or di discrepancy of luxury goods between the regions. So it was just so much cheaper before to buy luxury goods in Europe than say mainland China. I mean, the discrepancy in terms of price can range anywhere between say 20 to 50% for certain brands, right? And that's especially pronounced if RMB, which is the Chinese currency, is strengthening against say European currency, whether it's the Euro or Swiss franc. 
you know, this kind of large discrepancy in retail price tag of luxury goods between the region is, is really due to a few reasons. It could be um, import duty or tariff. It could be due to distribution costs, due to brand positioning in the different markets. So there are a variety of reasons that contributed to kind of the price um, difference in the two different regions. And then there's another kind of interesting phenomenon that is very unique to China, which is called Dai Gou. And basically what that meant is it's essentially an unofficial personal shopper who purchased luxury goods overseas on behalf of their clients in mainland China, right? So taking advantage again of this price discrepancy between the regions, mainland China versus elsewhere, mostly Europe. So I would say like, you know, these are some of the trends pre-pandemic. Basically, luxury brands have relied on international tourism and oversee buyers who, you know, do the purchase on behalf of Chinese nationals or their clients uh, in mainland China. So it, the concept of Dai Gou. So those are, those are like some of the trends pre, pre-pandemic in terms of kind of China. In terms of luxury, you know, historically, there's been a very high correlation between global GDP growth and luxury market growth. I mean, really discretionary, it's, it's, you know, luxury goods consumption, it's highly discretionary, right? It can be cyclical. So during a very typical economic recession, consumers, generally speaking, are going to feel relatively worse off than before, right? Their feel-good evaporates, uh, discretionary spend gets reduced, and what you see is typically a decline in top-line revenue growth of luxury goods companies, right? That makes sense in a typical global recession. And also because this industry has really high operating leverage, so top as top-line revenue growth contract, right? Um, a lot of your expenses are actually somewhat fixed. You can't reduce them as much. So unfortunately, your operating margin contract big time as well, which then usually leads to contraction in earnings, free cash flow. It's usually a cyclical low point in your profitability, which then results in kind of a low valuation multiple in the marketplace by the market. That's how it usually works in a typical global recession. But um, what we have experienced uh, in terms of COVID-19 in 2020 has been a bit of a different phenomenon or sort of like an anomaly. You know, prior to the pandemic, uh, luxury goods companies were were basically churning out very healthy growth. You know, companies like LVMH was growing organically in terms of top line revenue at double digit pace in 2019 in constant currency. That's a really healthy pace, right? Despite actually what was going on in Hong Kong in terms of pro-democracy protests and all these things that actually negatively impacted some of the luxury sales in the territory. So even despite of that, LVMH was growing organically at double digit pace year on year in 2019, which is pretty good. And then, of course, the pandemic took place first in China and then spread elsewhere. So in first quarter and second quarter of 2020, organic growth at LVMH was actually down a lot, uh, 20% year on year and 40% year on year in those two respective quarters, um, just to give you a ballpark gauge. However, by third quarter 2020, 
despite kind of like a, a near complete stop to international travel, luxury goods demands actually have proven to be quite resilient. Um, and actually LVMH confirmed their management mentioned this on their earnings call that the top nationalities in terms of luxury purchase, the Chinese, uh, the Americans, Europeans, all actually had positive young year growth in terms of luxury spend in the third quarter after significant decline, of course, in the first half of the year. Now, if you kind of just fast forward to today, you know, the latest reporting period, LVMH revenue resilience continued. Um, and then Asia, ex-Japan, which really was pretty much driven by China, was up organically almost more than 20% versus level in 2019. So we're comparing to a pre-pandemic kind of quarter or year, it was still up double digit, more than 20%, very healthy pace. And of course, China was LVMH strongest market um, in terms of growth in first quarter. So how has the Chinese consumer been able to remain so resilient in the face of everything that we've experienced throughout this pandemic? Everybody knows uh, the pandemic first broke out in China um, because of uh, Chinese government's heavy hand in terms of pandemic quarantine, travel restrictions. Really, China has handled the pandemic way better and faster compared to some of the rest of the world, which honestly helped to accelerate resumption to normalcy and luxury spend by consumer in the country. So, so it's basically just faster resumption to normalcy or normality. So that's, I would say that's reason number one. And reason number two is this like trend that already took place pre-pandemic, um, but just kind of accelerated is really just the uh, continued adoption and acceleration of e-commerce or digital luxury in China, right? Whether that's through kind of uh, brands.com, you know, their own website or social media, such as, you know, Tencent's WeChat or Alibaba's Tmall Luxury Pavilion, which is really a marketplace for luxury good sales in China. All that, basically, the adoption and acceleration of online luxury sales or e-commerce has really allowed luxury goods companies to penetrate even deeper into lower tier cities where historically they probably didn't have as much of a physical presence, right, from luxury flagship store perspective, and also even tap into kind of the new aspirational consumer segment as social media e-commerce has really made aspiration to luxury more universal and more accessible basically for all consumer in China. You know, I always say, you know, as a person, I may not be able to afford a Louis Vuitton branded handbag that costs, say, two to three thousand USD, but I can certainly afford a Christian Dior perfume that costs a hundred to one hundred fifty dollars. So that gets me a step closer to kind of that luxury or aspirational luxury. So I would say like the second point in terms of what kind of held up the resiliency of luxury sales by Chinese consumers is just this continued adoption or acceleration of e-commerce and digital luxury in China. And then I guess, as I mentioned before, you know, majority of luxury spend by the Chinese nationalities used to take place overseas, right? When they travel abroad in Europe and other parts of Asia. Well, this has unfortunately ceased to exist because of the pandemic and of course, international travel restrictions and all that. So instead, 
what the Chinese government did is they launched a myriad of policies to get these luxury spend that used to take place overseas or abroad to repatriate onshore in mainland China, essentially turning like these overseas shopping that used to happen to domestic consumption. That's basically what the Chinese government did in terms of policy. And, you know, in terms of specific policymaking, what they did is they developed a duty-free kind of zone on Hainan Island. And Hainan is basically an island in kind of southern part of China, tropical. It's oftentimes referred as the Florida or Hawaii of China. And uh, it's really easy for domestic Chinese mainland consumers to travel to because it's just a few hours of flight away. It's part of China. You don't need visa or permit or anything to go there. And that really serves as an attractive alternative to duty-free purchases uh, for mainland Chinese consumers that used to take place overseas, right? That can't happen anymore due to the pandemic. So you're making duty-free shopping in China easier, cheaper, you have a higher allowance. I think the allowance is like $15,000 per person in terms of duty-free shopping per year. So it's, it's a high amount. So basically, you know, because of that third kind of uh, uh, Chinese government policy making or policy incentives, you know, like it allows a lot of the luxury, global luxury goods companies to try to capitalize on that opportunity in Hainan building JVs with local Chinese duty-free operators, you know, or through concession agreements, basically trying to capitalize that onshore repatriation of luxury goods spend opportunity. So let's look at the U.S. consumer uh, and their impact on the luxury goods market during the pandemic. And now as, you know, we're slowly emerging from lockdowns, we're back in the office, people are getting out more. Um, what about us? What about the U.S. consumer? The U.S. consumer might be a slightly a little different. Um, you know, despite the pandemic, many households in the U.S., I mean, I don't mean to say this is all, of course, and maybe a little even lopsided at the top in terms of wealth gain, but it is true that many households did come out a little ahead post-pandemic than before. One, you have sort of... Um, you know, kind of like middle-class American households who used to take a few vacation per year, but can't and aren't doing that anymore because of the pandemic. So that essentially led to a migration from consumption of services such as travel, right, to now consumption of goods, which includes luxury goods. So that has helped a little bit. Um, two, I mean, you basically have ultra low interest rate QE, you know, government's various financial and fiscal responses due to the pandemic, um, you know, all these stimulus checks, unemployment benefits, you know, all these moratorium on loans, emergency lending, all these things, basically all kind of uh, amalgamated into positively affecting um, a rising asset prices, whether that's property, stock market, bond market, et cetera. And that growing wealth effect uh, probably made households who have access and, and, and own these assets, right? So, so they need to have access and own these assets. They probably make these households feel more affluent and uh, secure in their wealth. And so it's more of a psychological effect. 
And because of that, you know, many households probably capitalized on that, which again helped uh, to fuel the consumption of goods in general, which includes luxury goods. Um, so I, I would say those are probably some of the attributes um, that I can single out. And of course, U.S. was very important uh, for the luxury goods companies, namely like LVMH is the second strongest market in terms of growth after China for LVMH in the first quarter. And U.S. actually is pretty large. It's a quarter of the group sales. So it's not insignificant. Um, and even comparing to pre-pandemic quarter or year, so 2019, so comparing first quarter of 2021 to first quarter of 2019, pre-pandemic, organic top-line revenue growth for the U.S. Uh, was up double digit. So again, that was pre-pandemic. So I would say those are some of the reasons why U.S. has held up decently uh, from a luxury goods company um, top-line revenue growth perspective. So we spent a lot of time talking about luxury goods and names like Louis Vuitton and Rolex, uh, but we're going to shift to another area of your of your expertise, uh, and it's a dramatic shift because we're going to go from these luxury goods uh, to companies that focus on airport uh, operation. Uh, and as we all know, uh, the travel industry has been hit incredibly hard uh, throughout the pandemic. And how is the resumption of at least leisure travel, if not business travel? Uh, in global and regional travel, how has that impacted these operators and what's kind of the outlook for them? Yeah, um, so I guess it, it, uh, the airport operators, they're just a little hard to generalize in terms of, I guess, operating performance across the globe because um, the type of passenger traffic that pass through the airports and in terms of their revenue mix can really vary greatly from airport to airport. So for example, you know, there are some airports out there that, that are large transit hubs that are very exposed to corporate travel or international passenger traffic or even long haul flights, right? Which we really haven't seen a real inflection at all in terms of resumption of um, international travel. And, but there are other airport operators that are more domestic or regionally oriented, and they're more exposed to, say, passenger traffic, such as tourists or uh, visiting friends and family type of traffic. So they have nicely recovered. Um, so I'll just like quote a stat by, uh, I think it's Airport Council International, uh, which published their preliminary kind of world airport traffic ranking showing the dramatic impact of COVID-19 the pandemic had on the world's busiest airport in 2020. So of course, Guangzhou Baiyun International Airport, which is a large uh, airport in China, recorded the most passenger traffic in 2020 and followed by Atlanta Hartsfield Jackson International Airport here in the US just behind it. And, and if you look at kind of like the passenger trend of both of those airports, they're more domestically oriented in, instead of kind of an international airport such as Hong Kong or Singapore or Dubai or Amsterdam, et cetera. So seven of the top 10 airports for passenger traffic um, in terms of um, you know the busiest are in China with three in the US. And then um, in, in most cases, domestic air travel, like I mentioned, is beginning a, a kind of like a nice modest rebound, while of course international air travel remain depressed because of all these ongoing international travel restrictions. And you know, all those data make sense because 
think about the US, we probably have one of the highest vaccination rate, right? And think about China, which probably had one of the best control in terms of handling the pandemic early on, which, you know, both have kind of fueled into the resumption or resumption to normalcy in terms of domestic travel. But again, I think in terms of summary, I would just say, one, it's really hard to generalize across the globe. Um, I, it's probably just the uneven nature of the impact of and also recovery from the pandemic across the world. I would just say that's that's kind of like what I see in the uh, airport operators industry, I guess, uh, across the globe. Yiting, I want to thank you for joining me today on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. It's good to see you back in the office. Uh, and I hope we're back on here again. Thank you. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.